Uh, before I begin here this morning, just want to direct you to the bulletin, just say uh, a few things. Tonight we have family night. Um, it's our whatever, Sunday night, 5 o'clock. I would encourage you to come. We're going to see um, Ted Tripp to speak about consequences. It would be very good to, um, to see that if you come. I would encourage you to do that. Grandparents are welcome as well. That would be helpful for them. Uh, also, uh, annual meeting is in two weeks. Uh, we'd encourage you to do that. In fact, um, I'm thinking about doing something in the service this week. It's going to be different. It'll be a very encouraging Sunday for you. So, we'd encourage you to to come to that. Kind of put that on your calendar. You'll see that in the weekly word coming out. Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is, is all about how great Jesus is. It speaks about how Jesus is better than the prophets, He's better than the angels, He's better than Moses, He's better than Aaron, He's better than the high priest, He has a better covenant, He has a better sacrifice, He has a better tabernacle. Therefore, the, the conclusion of it is we need to press on. And five times in the book of Hebrews we have a warning section which the author really stops his, his exposition about how great Jesus is and he begins to exhort his readers to press on by faith in Him. And as we arrive this morning in chapter 4, we are in the second warning passage. We're, our passage this morning is chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The warning passage began in chapter 3, verse 7 and continues on even through chapter 4, verse 13. Before I read the text for you this morning, I want to tell you that it is a difficult portion of Scripture. It's very, very difficult to understand. William Barclay said it was a complicated passage. A.W. Pink called it by no means easy. John Piper called it 11 of the most complicated verses in all of the Bible. I know that I have spent much time Many of you know I've memorized these verses here and that means that I've gone over these verses hundreds of times in my mind. This week I set pen to paper trying to figure out everything. I'm not quite sure I've got it all figured out. Just being honest with you. But here's what I know I have figured out. I have figured out the main point because the main point is very clear. And with the main point we can stand firm even if we don't get all of the details. You know, many passages in the Bible are like that that uh, the main point is clear, but some of the parts aren't. And I would just say, hold on to the main point, even if you don't understand all the, the subtle parts which make up the whole. This is what makes the Bible a great book. The main point is easily understood even by children. But the, the fine point, some of the passages are very difficult, that is engaged the, uh, the finest, most intelligent of minds throughout the centuries. And so today will be a little bit challenging, but I think we can do it. If you don't get all the details today, that's okay. My heart is that you catch the main thing, the main point. And if you catch that, go home with that in your mind. I know your soul will be edified. I know that I will be encouraged. The main point of the passage flows from the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 19, we read this. So we see, it's kind of like a conclusion after what he said. He said, so we see that they, the Israelites, were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the Jews were not able to enter the land because they didn't believe. And then the contrast comes now in chapter 4 where the writer turns and says, you, on the other hand, you can enter. 
So enter His rest is the exhortation. In fact, that's the title of my message this morning. You might have it there on your notes. Children, I know you have it. You might have it in your bulletin. Enter His rest. It's a main point of the passage. So despite how um, confusing it is, how complicated it is, what's the main point again? Enter His rest. Good. That concept comes up six times in this passage. Look in verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may become short of it. There it is. A promise remains of entering His rest. In verse 3, we see that those who believed, who have believed, enter that rest. We see in chapter six, verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, that is, entering the rest, and those who formerly had good needs preached to them failed to enter, that they failed to enter the rest. From chapter 3, verse 19, the same thought. Uh, verse 9 has this well. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Um, verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. Verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. Anytime a phrase is repeated six times in 11 verses, bells ought to go off in your mind. You say, bing, 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 bing. Maybe this is important because the important things in Scripture are repeated again and again and again. And that's the key to the theme of our passage. It's entering His rest. Thus the theme of the, me- the title of my message this morning. But it leads us to another question. Okay, enter His rest. What does His rest mean? Well, The writer speaks of rest. He uses that word ten times here in this passage. It comes here in verse 1. A promise remains of entering His rest. Verse 3. We have believed, enter that rest. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter that rest. In verse 4. God rested on the seventh day. Verse 5. They shall not enter my rest. And even it has referred to, like in verse 6, some enter it, some enter the rest. They failed to enter. They failed to enter the rest. Verse eight. If Joshua had given them rest. Verse nine. There remains a Sabbath rest. Verse ten. The one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. Verse eleven. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Any time a word comes up eleven times, ten times in eleven verses, again you got to say this. There's something important about this word. That is the the theme. It it's it's important here. Now, the question comes up, so what does it mean? What does the word rest mean? Well, it's interesting that it, it, the word changes through the passage. It doesn't just mean just one thing. Uh, it has several different shades of meaning. And this way, the, the writer's being a bit poetic, meaning that he uses this word rest to describe several different things, all linking them together. In some instances, it speaks of our salvation. Our salvation is pictured as rest. In some instances, it pictures the, the coming in to the promised land. And in other instances, it, it talks about how God rested from His works, how He stopped from His works, satisfied in those things. And the, the common theme in all of these is that rest means a time of peace, a time of safety, when all the work is completed. Nothing more to be done. Task is accomplished. It's all finished. I rest safe and secure. And it's not too difficult to determine which of these three meanings is being spoken about with rest. When, when he speaks about those in the church, it's obviously talking about our salvation. When he speaks about those in Israel, it's talking about rest in the promised land. When he speaks about God, it's talking about his rest on the seventh day. It's pretty easy. Look there in verse 1. 
Therefore, let us fear if while a promise of entering His rest remains, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. There, He's talking about us. We have a rest that we can experience. We place our trust in Christ. That's our salvation. And that's a picture of our salvation right here. It's, it's when we realize that Christ has done everything for us and now we rest in Him. It's not a rest in the promised land because we aren't concerned about the land of Israel today. We're concerned about entering the rest of Christ. That comes up in verse 3 again. We have believed enter that rest, right? We believe in Jesus and we enter our rest in Him, a rest from our works. We don't have to work our way to God. But then even in verse 3, the second usage of the word rest speaks about Israel. David saying in Psalm 95, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God swearing by Himself that they are not going to enter the rest. They're not going to enter the promised land. It's pretty clear and obvious that that's what's spoken about there. And then, in verse 4, when it speaks about God resting the seventh day from all His works, you can see there how the allusion is to God about how He rested on that day. So it's not difficult to discern the different types of meanings, but the author is, is pulling all these themes together and kind of allowing us to see how our salvation is like the rest of Israel, how our salvation is like the rest of God. And, and, and what's interesting here is also the writer didn't just say, oh, this would be a nice theme to come up and talk with the, the people who need this message, to speak with them about rest, because the theme of rest runs all through the Bible. And so what I want to do is a little biblical theology, thinking about rest, because what the writer does here is merely picks up those things and applies it to us. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we read that by the seventh day God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Pictures the perfect state of affairs, right? God creates the world in six days, and then He rests, satisfied that everything He created was very good. It's finished, and now He's resting. In one sense, even Adam and Eve were resting in God. They were doing work. They were assigned to cultivate the garden and to keep the garden. But their work was nothing like the labor that we experience today. They had no, no weeds in their garden. How many of you like to have no weeds in your garden? It would be pretty easy. Just put a, put a seed in, right? And it grows up. That's not very hard work. As a matter of fact, that would be pretty restful, wouldn't it? Just kind of... Planting is fun. You just put it out there and expect it to grow. It's going to grow. And it's nice. And think about the Garden of Eden. There was fruit all around. The food of the trees was luscious and abundant. And there was communion with God. It was a picture of rest. It's not total doing nothing. There are some things. Adam had to keep the garden and to cultivate it. But it was a rest. But with the fall came hard labor and unrest. The curse came upon us all. Cursed is the ground because of you, is what God said to the man. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles will grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. And Adam and Eve and all who followed after them, including us, have felt the sting of sin. All creation has been longing for things to be restored with the new heaven and the new earth when all can be made right again. And the Bible really, if you look at it in a big picture like this, you can look at it in a way that it, it speaks about the rest that God had in Genesis 1 and 2 that Adam and Eve enjoyed. And, and then now how there's great unrest until that final day when there will be rest again. The, the story of the Bible really is a story about how we can obtain rest. 
you think about it, how Eden can be restored. Now, let me ask, how many of you long for a little rest? How many of you like sleeping in? Uh, Colin, I didn't see you raise your hand. Do you ever, kids, you know, they just, they want to get up. They don't want to go, um, they don't want to go sleep at night. But you all, right, we love to sleep in. How many of you love a day off you can spend your family? Lots of you do. Right, and there's no, I don't have responsibilities to work. I can spend it with my family. How many look forward to your vacation? You do, absolutely. Hannah, you're raising your hand every time. That's good. How many of you look forward to the days when you, you can just sit back and relax, right? Sipping your lemonade by the pool or the lake or wherever you're going to go. All of us do, right? I know particularly even here in our congregation we have several men who are longing for rest. I think, uh, Mike, hour and 45 minute commute each day. You're longing for rest, right? Uh, Perry Musio. He was here. He's kind of stepped out, I think, with some of the, the children. But he's longing for his his commute's well over an hour, hour fifteen minutes. We're longing for rest. I, I think often about our days in California. Those are restful days. Even we've been thinking about our vacation to California again, and 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 I picture this. I always look forward to the time when I finally get to Grandma Lola and Grandpa Ray's house. And uh, they got a pool in the back, in the backyard, and I can sit there underneath the shade with my Mountain Dew in my, my hand, and uh, with my book, and watching the kids swim. Like that is perfect rest for me. I'm like, this is this is glory. And then they're always asking, Dad, can you come swim? And I said, Well, just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. And after about ten pleadings, finally I say, okay, I'll jump in now. And I jump in and have some fun with them. And that is, that is rest. And God has placed within all of us a longing for rest as well. Just as we weary physically, also we are weary spiritually as well. St. Augustine said it well in his Confessions, very first page, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And that is the reality of this world. We are physically tired, spiritually tired. We need to find a rest. And we can find it in Him. And that has always been the quest of people all throughout Bible history. We've always been seeking rest in God. Those who lived in the days of Noah were longing to see rest as well. When he lived, men were saying about Noah, this is the one who gives us rest from our work and from the toil our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Noah, Noah means to rest. And Noah is going to be the one who's going to give us rest, they used to say. Well, it didn't really quite happen the way they imagined. So the flood came out. didn't come from him. True rest comes from God. But, but that theme is there. They're, they're looking for this rest. Years later, God gave the sons of Israel a Sabbath rest to taste the rest to come. Right When all your work is done, we've labored hard for six days, and then the Sabbath comes, you can sit back and you can relax and rest. It's a good day. One in seven to trust in the Lord. The sons of Israel, God promised rest in the land of Canaan. After 39 years of wandering around, packing up their tents and moving, and, and unpacking their tents, and packing up their tents and moving, for 39 years of wandering around, Moses told Israel, you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross this Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and He gives you rest from all your enemies around you so you live security in, securely, 
Then it shall come about that that place in which the Lord your God will choose for His name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you. And he's just saying this. The promised land is identified as a land of rest, a land of safety and security and peace from all the enemies. That, that same what, what, how, how Moses used the terminology, the same as Joshua used the terminology. Joshua chapter 1, he said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Right? God will give that to you. And at the end of his days, after Israel had indeed conquered most of the land, Joshua said, And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. He's given you rest. You've come into the land, what God had promised. But Israel's entering the rest in the Canaan didn't mean that all the rest was accomplished. Joshua gave them some of the rest, but he didn't give them permanent rest. They had rest for a little bit, and soon there were wars and conflicts and judges and other people. Then Israel was um, distressed once again. And in fact, 400 years later, David in Psalm 95 speaks about the promise of rest to the people of Israel. And several hundred years after that, Isaiah even speaks about the future rest. In Isaiah 14, verse 3, even Jesus spoke of a rest. Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And ultimately, we won't find our ultimate rest until we get to heaven. Listen to Revelation 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Finally, they die in the Lord. They may rest from their labor. They are done. There are times in life when I long to be in the grave, to rest, to be with God. I'm not, I don't want to die. Okay, don't, don't get that. But I long for that heavenly rest when the toils of life are done. And the theme of rest just carries through Scripture. In the beginning, God created he rested. In the course of history, people are always looking out for that rest and we will never find our rest until we find it in Jesus Christ. We'll no longer, in Christ is when we will no longer strive to please God in our own efforts, but the symbolism here of rest is this, that we're trusting and resting upon His work. And we can find rest in the cross of Christ. Ultimately, though, our rest will come in heaven. And that's the, the varied colored aspect of this word rest throughout all of biblical history. And now with all that as an introduction, I think we're ready a little bit to read our passage. But we can't start in chapter 4, verse 1. We've got to start in chapter 3, verse 15, because that sets up the whole context of this. The writer of the Hebrews says this, While it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom was he angry for forty years? Was it, and to whom did he swear that not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. 
just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. <clears throat> you see how the passage is hard? I'm sure you followed all of that, right? As <laughs> you look at me like, whoa, what was that? All right, we'll, we'll, we'll be okay here. Two points this morning come from the two exhortations in the passage. My first point comes from verse 1. Let us fear. You can see it right there in verse 1. Therefore, let us fear. Right? Can you see it? Some of you, unfortunately, cannot see it. If you have an NIV in your hands, they translated this, and I'm not sure why they did it. Let us be careful. But every other Bible translation uses the word fear, and I don't know why the NIV felt the need to soften it because it's not soft here. It is a fear. It's not, oh, Johnny, be careful in the street. It's, Johnny, when you cross the street, fear the trucks because they can kill you. That's the idea here. It is a fear, not just a a being careful. We need to fear. The stakes are high. We need to be warned. So you say, what do we need to fear? We need to fear coming short of His rest. Look at verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. See, the rest that God promised isn't merely for those in Old Testament times. No, there's a rest for us today in Rockford, Illinois, 2010. Our danger is that we'll come short of the rest of God. Let me ask you have you ever fallen short? not really pleasant, is it? You're, you're, you're walking across the stream and you're jumping from rock to rock and finally you got one with a, it's a big leap and you kind of go like this and you go, oh, and you fall short and what do you get? Soggy sneaker is what I think you get. Splat. And it's not pleasant. Then you've got to walk on the rest of your nature trail walk with a soggy foot. And you'd probably get the other one soggy too as you try to get out. It's not pleasant. <clears throat> you ever had a class? Fell a little bit short. Not so pleasant. It's got to be taken again. You ever seen a basketball player fall short in one of his shots? Right, he's there, there at the free throw line. He's bouncing his ball at 15 feet away and he bounces his ball and he shoots it and misses everything. What happens to him? For the rest of the game, all of his, uh, the opposing crowd is just, every time he touches the ball, is saying what? Have you ever been to a basketball game? It's an air ball, air ball. Every time he touches the ball, he's going to be reminded. It's not pleasant. Have you ever fallen short of your next step? You're expecting a step, you know, up the stairs. It's not there. You fall and you land on your face. It's not pleasant. The checkbook ever fallen short? It's not so pleasant. 
But such examples are trivial in comparison with coming short of the rest that God has promised. In these cases, just a a wet foot or a bruised ego or financial hardship. But in our text this morning, the consequences of falling short are damnation. That's why we need to fear, because the stakes are so high. We have every reason to fear this. Last week, I told you some in the Bible who fell short. Remember I told you my own testimony of hearing John MacArthur preach from Matthew chapter 7 about the people who come to Jesus that day and say, Lord, Lord, let me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here are people who fell short of heaven. And that's what we're talking about ultimately here. And when I heard that for the first time... there was a healthy fear in my soul. Looking back, even I understand it. Even you know, there was a fear that God stirred in my heart, lest I come short. And that fear pushed me to know Christ and to believe in Him and to trust Him all of my days. And, and you know what? There's still even a dose of fear in my life today that presses me on to love Christ until the dying day. I, I want my kids to say of Dad when he dies, he remained faithful until the end. I want that, and so I fear that. In fact, it's even appropriate for us believers to have a fear. Look at the writer here. He says, let us fear, first person plural, including himself in on that. Don't ever think that you say, oh, I'm okay. That's only to non-Christians. They need to fear lest they and miss the rest. No, no, no. We all need to fear. There's a healthy gospel fear. We read in our prayer time this morning from uh, Psalm 130, verse 1, which says, not, not verse 1, it's some other... It says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's a forgiveness with God. The result of that is that He ought to be feared. And that's what we see here. There's a rest. There's a forgiveness that God provides. Therefore, we need to fear. There's a promise of entering His rest. We see it there in verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest any one of you may seem to have come short of it. See, it's not that, the, that the, the rest is out of reach. It's there. It's not that the basketball hoop is not... It's there. And it's reachable. It's not like there's a huge chasm you're trying to jump across the creek. You're not trying to jump 20 feet, okay? It's reachable. This rest is. And there's this promise. And this promise, by the way, is sure and steadfast. Over in chapter 6, you can turn over there. The writer speaks about how secure this promise is. In fact, we see that God making this promise doubly sure. It says in verse 13 of chapter 6, When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In other words, men swear by themselves, you've got to make an oath, it's an end of everything. And it says, in the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of His promise, that is us, the unchangeableness of His purpose, He interposed with an oath. I mean, if God says something, is it going to take place? God promises something is going to take place? Yes, right? Let's try that again. If God promises something, is it going to take place? Yes. yes. And here, think about this. God then swears by Himself, making a oath doubly sure. It says here, 18, so that by two unchangeable things. First of all, God can't lie, which is possible for God to lie. The second thing is He swore by Himself. 
to make it sure we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. There's a promise that His rest is near. It is available. There is a promise of entering His rest. And the promise is this, the one who believes in Jesus will enter the rest. There's the promise. You believe in Jesus, you'll enter the rest. In fact, that's what it says in verse 3 of chapter 4 again. So go back to our text. Chapter 4, verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. You know, one of the things I struggle with in this passage is the rest all future, is it present? I think there's a lot here. The rest is speaking about ultimately entering the rest of heaven, but there is a very reality. We have rest here on earth as we, verse 3, present tense, we enter that rest. Listen, by faith you can take Jesus as better than anything else here upon the earth. By faith you can cling to Jesus as your only hope and you will find rest in Him. You know you can rest in your works. You don't have to work for your salvation. Christ accomplished it all. You can simply rest and trust and delight in Him. And that's available for us today because we believe enter that rest. But with the rest comes danger and the danger comes in verse 2. With the promise comes danger, rather. The danger is expressed in verses 2 and 3. Indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The writer here takes us back to the days of Moses. They had good news preached to them. When the sons of Israel cried out in their slavery... They groaned to the Lord, and it says in Exodus chapter 2 that God heard their distress. He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw their distress. He took notice of them, and He, he gave Moses a plan. He said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring My people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses then took that message that God had told him, went to the elders, told him, showed them signs, went to the people, showed them signs. Here's what we read in Exodus 4.31. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. Now such a response might seem a little bit strange to you. They, they believed? I thought Hebrews is saying they didn't believe. I thought verse 2 says... The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. But it says in Exodus 4.31, they believed. Well, the, the key is this, is that their faith never endured. Don't read so much into a one-time faith, right? Look at their lives and see, are they believing people? And all you do is read the testimony of, of Israel and see they didn't believe at all. Over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at how they grumbled and complained and doubted God. Ten of the twelve spies doubted and the people followed them in their unbelief. So though they started well, they failed to finish in their faith. And as a result, the word they heard did not profit them because ultimately they weren't believing. Oh, they made some profession. They made some kind of action on it. But in the end, they weren't believing. And so you say, you look at them as a whole. Were they believing? No, they weren't. And such is our danger. Such is the danger in the church. How many start up and profess a faith and yet don't continue until the end. And what happened with these people? According to chapter 3, verse 17, they were laid low in the wilderness. And I just say this, church family, let us fear 
lest our faith not endure. I ask you this week, I ask you today, are you profiting by the Word? Are you profiting by the Word? Is the Word helping your bottom line in some sense? Is it making a change in your life? A business profits when it, you know, sells more when it costs when it receives in more than it takes out. Are, are you receiving in lots from the word? Are you profiting from the word? Is it making an effect upon your life? Because the danger here is that though they heard the good news, it didn't profit them. See, is God's word having an effect upon your soul? Week in, week out, are you growing? Can you say this past week? God's Word profited me in this way. Can you say that? If you say, Steve, it's not having any effect upon me. Well, you have reason to fear, lest you end like the Israelites. You know, too many of us have Bibles upon our shelves that collect dust that can't be found even on Sunday mornings or, or are found easily because they're in the same place all the time. It may well be that you might come short of the grace of God. Because true belief endures until the end. Just Every day, just trust the Lord. May it not be said of us, Rock Valley Bible Church, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. Because we've heard the word. I mean, the constant testimony here is that Christ is all and rest in Him. The word goes out all the time. Lest you doubt and say, well, I'm believing now, I'm going to believe until the end. There is confidence that we have here in verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. As I mentioned before, it is a, it's a present tense. If you believed in Jesus, then you can be assured you've entered His rest. And you are entering His rest, and you will enter His rest. The rest isn't all future, though much of it is. There's a very present reality as well. And it's we who believe in Jesus... We don't have to keep striving to be good enough for God. We can rest assured in Jesus' works. We can rest assured of His shed blood for our sins. We can rest assured that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We can rest assured that by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We can rest assured that in the new covenant there is no longer any offering for sin and that we have rested completely in Him. That, that assurance can be yours. And we can have confidence in our standing before the Lord. Just as surely as the Israelites didn't enter His rest, so we too may enter His rest and we may have a confidence that we're resting in Him. That, that's how verse 3 reads. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as He says, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, we have entered our rest just as surely as they have not entered their rest, is how that, that flows. And we can draw near in full assurance of faith, as Hebrews 10.22 tells us. Or chapter 4, verse 16, right down there. We are called to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. As I speak about fear that, or faith that falls, that, that uh, doesn't endure until the end, you don't have to walk around just paranoid that your faith won't continue until the end. In chapter 6, the writer gives one of the strongest warning passages in all of Hebrews, and then he follows it up by saying in chapter 6, verse 9, But beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. 
In other words, what, what he's saying is, is he's saying, I'm speaking a great warning of those who don't believe, but I have great confidence in you all this morning that you are believing that you have entered His rest. And I just say, the writer to the Hebrews here, his heart is my heart. It's a pastor of Rock Valley Bible Church. This is my testimony. I have the privilege of rubbing shoulders with many of you throughout the week. Call you, visit you, pray with you, speak with you. And I'm convinced of better things concerning you than even come up here in this passage. I get to see people living out their faith in very real ways. Ways that their lives cannot be explained except the power of Christ within them. And that is the joy of pastoring. And that is the joy I, I love. And we have, by all means, means and ways to stand secure. In chapter 10, the writer speaks about uh, those who shrink back. And he finishes the chapter 10 by saying this, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He says, you know, there are people who shrink back, but we are not of those people. We press on. So it's not all doom and gloom and doubt to the preserving of your soul. You can have confidence today that you've entered His rest if you're believing. If you've seen the pattern of your life is one that's continually trusting, believing in God. But let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the call for us this morning, 1 Corinthians 10.12, as I read earlier. As you see yourself continuing face faith, you can have confidence. Hebrews 10 verse 35 says, don't throw away your confidence, but continue to trust in Jesus. Alright. <clears throat> now we've come to verses 3 through 8. These are, these are the difficult portions of the text. Alright, so far it's been pretty, pretty clear. And so, uh, whenever children, maybe you've done this with your teachers, I'm not sure if your moms do this if you're teaching or if you're at school, they do this. What do they say when you've got something really hard? What do you need to put on? All right, we're going to put on our thinking caps today, all right? And we're going to do this. This is my Knox College baseball hat right here. Number, number one is written right here. Knox College, we're, we're back in college now, all right? Here we go, verse 3. And I'll take this off. So if you just want to tune out, he's got the hat on, so he's too tough for me. That's fine, you can tune out now. But for those of you who want to dig, we'll dig. It'll be short. Here we go. Verse 3, As I have swore to my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, is what God says although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. These words bring God's rest into view. The the key word here, I think, is my. They they will not enter my rest. See, it's God's rest that we enter. It's no accident I called my message this morning, enter His rest. It's not so much our rest, it's the rest we have in Him. And that's the quotation here in the end of verse 3. He's alluding to the time when God rested. It says in verse 4 here that He has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, that is Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And see, we can enter into the rest that God has rested. In fact, if you read Genesis, you can see that His rest continues on. Throughout the creation account, it's, it's always there was evening and there was morning day one. There was evening and there was morning a second day. There was evening and there was morning a third day. And yet, Seventh day, that's not there at all. It doesn't say evening and morning is seventh day. It just says by the seventh day, God was done creating and He rested, almost as if His rest continues on. 
And that's the rest then that we can enter. We can enter into the rest of God. And it doesn't mean that God has ceased all activities. So don't, don't think about rest in God and rest in Christ as a ceasing from everything. No, there's work to be done. But it's all delightful. As 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. The commandments are not burdensome. It wasn't burdensome for Adam to keep and cultivate the garden. It's not burdensome for us to serve the Lord in ways. But it's, it is burdensome if we're trying to work our way to God. It's not that God has ceased from activities. Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. God's work is not laborious at all. It's not tiring. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. What God has done, He is resting now. Yes, He's running the world, and for us that would fatigue us, but for God, it doesn't. It is, he doesn't get tired. He doesn't need rest. But we get tired, and we need rest, and we can find God's rest. And whenever we find it, whatever work that needs to be done, like our Father's still working, it's not wearisome at all. I think that's the transition here between 3 and 4. There's a rest available. They didn't enter my rest. They didn't go into the promised land permanently. But God has a rest. And verse 5, that's where it's picking up. But again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, they died in the wilderness. They were laid low in the wilderness. And, and, and then those who actually did enter with Joshua didn't have a permanent rest. Look at verses 6 through 8. That's what it alludes to. Therefore, it says, since it remains for some to enter it, because David, 400 years after Joshua, is still promising this rest, since it still remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixed a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before in Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, Today, if you hear his hearts, do not harden your, your hearts. And it continues on, just as they didn't. And they didn't enter the rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Israel had good news preached to them. They failed to enter. And in Psalm 95, he makes the same offer. He says, today, 1000 B.C., as David wrote, he's telling them, don't harden your hearts like they did, like Israel did. And if you do you won't enter the rest as they didn't enter the rest either. So soften your hearts and you will know His rest is what David is saying. And the writer here says, well, since David is offering the same rest that Joshua offered, Joshua didn't complete it with them. Yes, he brought them into rest, but not permanent rest. That means the offer of the rest still stands. And verse 9 is the key. Here it is. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, I'm going to take off my thinking cap now. Right. If you don't understand anything that was said, that's okay because I don't need either. I'm trying my best. But here's the main point. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's the point. There is a rest for us in Jesus Christ. Now you, you might you might notice here there's a subtle change here. It's called Sabbath rest. It's not just a rest. The Greek word here is sabbatismos. It means the word Sabbath rest. I might easily believe, thinking about a Sabbath rest, a weekly rest now. But I, I think the whole context of the passage points bigger than a weekly rest. Oh, it might have allusion to that. But he, he's talking about our salvation that we have. It's not, okay, well, Joshua didn't give them the rest, so that now we can keep the Sabbath. That's not it. 
Joshua didn't give them rest. Now we can have, there is a Sabbath rest that's available for us. It's a joyous rest. The rest that comes from our salvation. A, a complete stoppage of our work before the Lord. In fact, that's what verse 10 says. For the one who has entered his rest through faith in Christ has himself also rested from his works. We have rested from His works just as God did from His. The, the example of Genesis 2 and God resting from His works is the same example of how we ought to be in Jesus. It's done, it's accomplished, the cross of Christ. We are resting in a finished work. We don't need to earn our way to, before God. We don't need to engage in religious activity for God's approval. In fact, that's the glories of the Gospel, right? Is it, is it Christ died for us so that We don't have to work to get to Him. He has brought us to Him. Christ died for us, took us, grabbed us in His hand, brought us up to the throne by faith. And and for the people here, it's gone are the sacrifices, gone are the festivals, gone are the priests and the rituals. We are made right with God through faith. And there may be things too as well this morning that you're dealing with. Well, all these things, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. Listen, wipe all that away. You don't have to do that. You believe in Christ and rest in Him and let your work flow from your rest. We're made right with God through resting upon His promises. Someday we'll know the ultimate Sabbath rest in the new Jerusalem and heaven. But until then... Let us fear lest we fail to enter that rest. Well, my second point comes in verse 11. One last point, really quick. First point, let us fear. Second point, let us strive. Let us strive to enter His rest. We see that in verse 11, right? Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Many of you have heard this. It bears repeating though. The only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And the call verse 11 is a call to learn from history. You can see what happened to Israel and so learn from their failures. Don't follow their pattern of unbelief. Rather, let us strive to enter that rest. They didn't strive to enter that rest. They followed their own passions and their pleasures. As I read earlier, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said of those in Israel, these things happen as examples for us so we would not crave evil things as they also craved. The writer of Hebrews brings back the same thought to mind. Heed what happened to them and avoid it. Don't follow their same example of disobedience. Rather, on your head, strive to enter the rest. Now, you think about that a little bit, it, it's a strange command, right? Strive to rest, right? Work to rest. It's a little bit like 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Be strong in grace. I think the key is what Jesus said in John 6, verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in Him who sent, whom He has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in Him. You say, oh, what's, what's the work of God? What, what, what good thing do I need to do? You need to believe in Jesus. There's the work. I can think of no better illustration of this than the life of Hudson Taylor, founder of China Inland Mission. He labored tirelessly for Christ in that country. If you've read any of his biographies, it's 
It's amazing stuff. You'll be encouraged by him as much as anybody else in the history of the church. China, his time was just along the coast where it was easy. He said, no, let's go hard. Let's go inland. China inland mission. So he ministered to the Chinese inland, not merely on the coast. And saw some tremendous answers of prayer. And yet he was resting in in Jesus. One biographer said it this way. In Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. He said, the secret of Hudson Taylor's own strength was not far to seek. Whenever work permitted, Mr. Taylor was in the habit of turning to a little harmonium for refreshment. It's like a little piano player that blows by wind. Piano that plays by wind. Playing and singing many a favorite hymn, but always coming back to this hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of Thy loving heart. The biographer continues, one of the evangelists that was working with him, a Mr. George Nickel, was with him on one occasion when some letters were handed into his office bringing news of some serious rioting in two of the older stations of the missions. Right? The rioting was taking place and people were at danger in the other stations of the mission. And thinking that Mr. Taylor might wish to be alone, probably to pray, or to deal with the agony of distress, the younger man was about to withdraw when, to his surprise, someone began to whistle. It was a soft refrain of the same well-loved hymn. And Mr. Nickel turned back and said, How can you whistle when our friends are in so much danger? Would you have me be anxious and troubled, was his quiet reply. That would not help them and would certainly incapacitate me from my work that I have just rolled off my burden on the Lord. And day and night, the biographer says, this was his secret, just to roll the burden on the Lord. Frequently those who were wakeful in the little house at Chian King might hear at two or three in the morning the soft refrain of Mr. Taylor's favorite hymn. He had learned that for him only one life was possible, just that blessed life of resting and rejoicing in the Lord under all circumstances while he dealt with the difficulties inward and outward, great and small. And I think that captures well the spirit here of verse 11, that we ought to be diligent to enter that rest. When difficulties and trials come upon us, we just whistle, Jesus, I'm resting and resting and trusting in you. And striving about all these, just we're resting and trusting in you. And so we strive to enter that rest. And I just say, church family, may we learn the example of Hudson Taylor and learn to rest in him as well. Well, we're actually going to close by singing that hymn. Uh, Jesus, I am resting, resting. I'll call the music team up. Maybe that can be our our final prayer of just resting in Him. Um, May this be a pledge of your assurance before the Lord that you're just resting and trusting Him. Hudson Taylor's favorite hymn.